really glad that everybody is here today. Uh, after Easter celebration two weeks ago, I wanted to continue um, the storyline of Easter and the resurrection by kind of just looking at one of Jesus' disciples and his initial reaction to this news that, that Jesus had risen from the dead, and that disciple's name is Thomas. And so last week we started a series we're calling Faith, with a question mark, Faith, I doubt it. And I hope that it's going to be encouraging and helpful for each of us as we look at the reality of doubts that we face as just regular, normal people. And my hope is that, that more and more as this series goes on, uh, we will realize how we don't have to hide from doubts. Um, uh, and doubt and acknowledging doubt can actually help to strengthen People are afraid sometimes they think doubt's going to weaken their faith, but it can actually help to strengthen our faith and make it more authentic. In fact, I know in our small groups, um, if you're in one of the small groups, we're talking through this, and I, and I know some of the conversations have been very uh, interesting, enriching, and just help people kind of dig into more stuff uh, in the small groups. Um, but I want to start just telling you a little story uh, that happened last week. If you've been around here at Hope for a while, you probably know Brittany White, and she's on staff. She leads both our kids' ministry, and uh, she also runs the office, which we all know means she runs the church, okay? So uh, if you ever wonder, she is the one. So she has uh, two sons, and the, the littlest one, five-year-old Remy, uh, she told us about a conversation that she had, isn't that cute, right, with uh, Remy, this is Remy looking cute. If you know Remy, you've seen him other ways too, right? There's his dad, yeah. His dad is laughing really hard. So here's what happened after church last Sunday. Brittany and Remy were talking. Brittany said, um, I, she said, I, she said I, I told Remy that, that Gigi, his grandma, Gigi was at church, and I asked if he got a chance to say hi to his Gigi. And Remy says, she wasn't at church. And mom says, yeah, buddy, she was at church. You didn't see her? And Remy replied, she wasn't there. I didn't see her, so I don't believe it. Which, if you were with us last week, right, the sermon theme, right, kind of ironic, interesting. But there's more to the story still, even more. So Brittany laughed, and then she explained to Remy that actually that morning at church, the sermon was about the disciple named Thomas, um, who most people call Doubting Thomas, but we decided we were going to call him Honest Thomas. Uh, and, and she told Remy how Thomas said almost the exact same thing about Jesus when Jesus was resurrected. You know, I didn't see it, so I don't believe it. And then Remy said this. He goes, well, Thomas is my middle name. So, <laughs> so there you go. Well done, young man. Remy living into his middle name. Well done, well done. Well, today is part two of looking at this disciple of Jesus who's most often known for his doubts. And uh, just a recap of the story, and we'll kind of wade our way back into it. Uh, Thomas, after Jesus um, was crucified and then resurrected, he was one of the 11 remaining disciples of Jesus because Judas was now out, out of the picture. Um, and so when Jesus had died on the cross, they were all devastated. They were completely devastated. All their hopes and dreams for, for this future and this Messiah were, were dashed because on a Friday, very suddenly, he was killed and Jesus was dead. And if 
you know, and as you might know, um, on Easter Sunday, though, we celebrate his resurrection, uh, which was a surprise to the disciples. But on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. And the first thing that happens throughout that Sunday, he appears to a handful of different folks. And those are great stories as well. So, but here's the deal. His disciples have heard this rumor on Sunday during the day that Jesus is alive, but they haven't seen him yet, and they're scared to death um, because they figure what happened to Jesus, you know, crucifixion, kind of a horrible way to die. They're afraid that that's going to happen to them, and so it's Sunday night, and we find the disciples locked in a room. They are scared to death. They are shaken in their boots or their sandals, whatever, Um, and so John 20, verse 19, tells us this. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors. Everybody catch that? Can you say locked doors? Locked, locked doors. Locked doors. Okay, we got that part, right? Interesting. Because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, suddenly Jesus was standing among them, and he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, just to make sure they knew it was really him. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So, pause for a second. Jesus appears to 10 of the 11 remaining disciples, and they are ecstatic. And then we meet the 11th guy who missed it, Thomas, in verse 24. It says, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side where the sword had pierced him. I will, he said, I will not believe. Now, last week, we talked about how sometimes um, we can feel let down by God, and when that happens, oftentimes that's when doubts start to rise up. And I do think that that's part of what was going on with Thomas here. He had high hopes. He had sacrificed three years of his life to follow his rabbi, uh, Jesus. Um, lived like a nomad traveling everywhere. And suddenly it all just comes crashing down. And so while I still believe and think that disappointment and feeling let down, that has to be some of what Thomas was dealing with um, in his doubt. But I think there was more to it than that. In fact, I I think about how brutal the crucifixion of Jesus was and him watching Jesus and the disciples all watching Jesus be mocked and spit on and beat to a bloody pulp. And, And then they watched this physical torture of being nailed to a cross And for the followers of Jesus, watching all this go down shockingly, it had to be traumatic to watch it unfold. And so Thomas, I believe, was just devastated because of this tragedy that he had witnessed. That word tragedy, I think, is key here um, because I think it tells us a bit about our own life, our own story, and the story of our world around us. See, tragedy has the potential to really stir up lots of honest, real doubts. In fact, I I think that perhaps nothing has more potential to shake our faith than when we try to understand or deal with the tragedies that happen around us. Uh, 
Dostoevsky is a Russian philosopher from the 1800s. He believed in God, but he wrote this. He wrote, the death of a single infant calls into question the existence of God. And I get that. I get that. <laughs> I completely get it. Um, seeing that or even starting to wonder about that would ignite doubt in any of us who are honest. Because where is God then? And personally, I've asked that question quite often. Where is God when that stuff happens? You know, so many human beings witness unimaginable tragic, horrific, traumatic things that give us plenty of reasons to doubt God's existence and to legitimately wonder, does God actually care about us if he does exist? Um, Holocaust survivor uh, Elie Wiesel tells of his first night in a concentration camp seeing a wagon load of babies driven up. They were unloaded, thrown into a ditch of fire. This is what he had to watch And then he wrote this, never shall I forget the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things, even if I'm condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. And I just think that is so honest, (laughs) so honest, and it's completely understandable, right? This is the world we live in, isn't it? It's a fallen world. Ever since the Garden of Eden and the choices that humankind made to walk away from God, the tragic choices of humankind continue to send us down horrific paths where people do horrible things to other people. And I think it's easy to blame God sometimes for what people do. And we talk about this every once in a while here at Hope, but, and, and I'm not going to pretend to have you know, some magic answer to why these things that happen, these awful things, why they actually happen. But I think especially it's important for us who are followers of Jesus to remember that when people are themselves asking these kinds of questions or they're dealing with tragedy or trauma, they are dealing with doubt, I don't think it's wise for us who are around those folks to to spout off trite, cliched-sounding answers. Things like, well, God's in control. Um, Or, well, that was all, I guess that was all a part of God's plan. And I say, really? Uh, I doubt it. I mean, I know there are lots of folks that interpret scripture that way and they think that that's what God's sovereignty means, but there are lots of us who pressing into those questions and trusting scripture and the narrative that's in scripture would disagree with those things. Um, And again, it's easy to blame God for what people do. Just put that stuff on God or on his sovereignty and misunderstand, I think, misunderstand what sovereignty actually is. And when we think we know and then we spout off cliches to people who are dealing with doubt or death or tragedy, when we do that, uh, we really are kind of sending them this message um, by slapping an answer on it. Hey, listen, it's, it's, it's not okay to question God when you are in pain. Even though, by the way, all over the Psalms this happened in the Bible, okay? But we're saying to them, no, 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 it's not okay. You can't be honest like that, at least around here, so knock it off. And I think it's important for us as a church, 
and I know many of us do this very well. Um, it's, it's, it's important for us to learn to be willing to sit quietly sometimes with people who are in doubt or pain and, and just honestly listen to people voice their doubts to just listen. Um, in fact, if we're not willing to do that, we can actually drive people away from seeking God because we got the answer. We're going to share the answer. And by the way, it's not wrong to have some ideas and answers and have thoughts. That's not wrong. But the timing of how or when to share or if it's even appropriate to share uh, is another question. Because oftentimes, I think we Christians have to admit, sometimes some of us anyway, maybe, maybe more of us pastors or people that have been Christians for a long time, we think we want to fix people, right? Which actually, there's an element to that that can be kind of shallow, um, Sometimes we respond to people because we just want to fix it or it's too hard for us to hear their doubts so we can't just sit in it and wonder with them. Maybe our own stuff feels so heightened if we hear somebody's honest doubts that we're afraid it's going to take us under. And so maybe out of fear, um, we respond with these bad answers. Um, Sometimes uh, even preachers will add to someone's pain while they're in suffering by saying things like, well, you have not been healed or delivered because you don't have enough faith. Um, or saying things like, well, listen, everything that happens is God's will, so you have to just deal with it. And that's just not helpful. And I think, um, at least, it's not actually biblical, um, and it's not true. And slapping those answers on people, it just isn't helpful. And so what I hope is here at at our church community, in our church family, that more and more of the time we learn to listen to folks. And instead of shutting down reasonable doubts with the quick answer, um, we learn to ask for or to practice asking for spiritual consent. I touched on this last week just for a moment, just wanted to say a little more about it. So spiritual consent, asking for this, um, which would mean that after sitting with someone, after listening and caring, then if, and that's a big if, if we think that we have something to say that might help them or encourage them, first we ask for their consent. Because maybe they just wanted somebody to listen. And then, then, right? But if you still think that you have something that would be helpful, then ask them, um, hey, are you, are you inviting me? Are you inviting me to, and, and just ask. And because sometimes they're not, right? Sometimes they're not. And in a moment, especially when they're not asking for feedback or input or some kind of answer. Um, so in those moments, especially, consent matters. Um, we we, we want to honor people's need to simply be heard, which honors them. It honors their story. It's very much like Jesus to do that. And, and instead of barging through the door... <laughs> Um, we practice spiritual consent, which is a way of practicing the posture of Jesus, where we ask, um, hey, can I, can I share something with you? And if they say, mm, I'm not ready, then we go, hey, awesome, no problem, I'm still here for you. I'm still here for you. So, so in our culture, in our church, when people are in trauma or pain, let's learn to be with them, to be present long, long time of listening before we jump in to fix. Um, I want that to be more and more a part of our church culture. I think it, it helps us to be with people who are finding and following Jesus wherever they're at. Now, back to our, our story here with Thomas. Um, 
When Thomas said, I'm going to put my, you know, unless I put my hands in the nail prints and stick my hand in the hole of his side, right? This visceral response he had was very honest. And it was a very honest response to the tragedy he had watched unfold um, with Jesus. What's cool, though, is that the other disciples, apparently they stuck with him because they didn't kick him out. And, and, And to his credit... He didn't withdraw from them even in his pain or doubts. He stayed connected to these other disciples even in his doubt. And then eight days later, verse 26 tells us Jesus reappears. He comes for Thomas. Text says, a week later, Jesus' disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Jesus says this to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Thomas in response says this to Jesus, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. See, for Thomas, not only did seeing Jesus convince him, whoa, Jesus really is alive, it brought him all the way over to this other side to believe not just that Jesus was alive, but but that Jesus was God. And this is what transformed the story of Thomas. And we read that verse last week, but we didn't get to to this part um, about his story being transformed. Um, There's this really cool thing uh, that I think is important to notice uh, at this point in, in Thomas's story, which is, you know, like the rest of the story. Um, see, this guy who historically we label him Doubting Thomas, and personally I think we need to call him Honest Thomas, but I think he also deserves another moniker, and that would be Courageous Thomas. Um, some of you might know the rest of the story of the life of, of this disciple Thomas. The rest of the story is that Thomas actually becomes a missionary. And so tradition and some historical sources credit Thomas with bringing the gospel to what nation? Anyone know? Anybody know? Nobody knows? To India. There we go. Yes, my wife who knew because she read the notes already. Yeah. <laughs> to India. And can you imagine, right, all the way to India, um, way back then, can you imagine having the courage to travel almost 3,000 miles to, to, to bring them the good news, the good news of Jesus? And in India, Thomas is said to have ministered for 29 years in that land before being martyred. He built at least, at least seven churches in India, and to this day, There is a community of Christians. They call themselves the St. Thomas Christians of India. Uh, And this community of folks has been following Jesus for 2,000 years. Like their grandpa and their great-grandpa and their great-great-great-grandma and their great-great-great-great-grandpa. All 2,000 years back. And why today is that happening? Because an honest doubter had the courage to go all the way to India and bring Jesus to them, and it revolutionized a society. So, so, so in that verse right there, verse 28, where, where Thomas says, my Lord and my God, he is declaring, Jesus, you are my Lord. Jesus, you are my God. 
and I will go anywhere and do anything that you call me to do. And since you, Jesus, are alive, there is nothing that's impossible. I am all in. I am all in. And we see that through the evidence of the rest of his life story, uh, even the parts that aren't in Scripture. And that's why I think that courageous Thomas is an even more accurate nickname for this disciple. Now, get back to his story. I mean, it's kind of cool. Like, it worked out for Thomas. He doubted. Jesus shows up. And, oh, hey, so now he believes and he becomes very courageous. Um, But can I get really honest with you guys when I read this story? Like, forever, for the longest time, even from my younger years, I would read these stories about how Thomas's doubts are addressed by Jesus, like, showing up. And I've thought... Well, yeah, right? (laughs) If I saw Jesus like the disciples saw Jesus, then I would have no doubts either, right? Ever, ever. Um, Seems like all my doubting issues would just go away. Anybody ever think that? Is this just me? Just a few of us. Okay, all right, okay. Um, The rest of you go polish your halo. So, uh, but... um, Some people would say, again, I think it's reasonable, like, hey, yeah, if I saw Jesus, yeah, then I'd become a Christian, And I get that. I totally get that. To me, it makes perfect sense. But there's more to the story that we'll get to here in a second here. Um, I love what we're about to read here, how Jesus' next words were recorded. And and I believe what Jesus is, what we're going to read here in a second that he's about to say, it shows, I believe, that Jesus was well aware how this Thomas story might land on some of us even 2,000 years after the fact. So Thomas gets his wish, he gets to see Jesus, and verse 29, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And I'm really grateful that Jesus said that, because most of us haven't seen Jesus, not in a physical way. We don't get to see what Thomas saw. We don't get what Thomas got. But here, Jesus blesses us because we haven't seen him, yet some of us are still willing to believe in Jesus, aren't we? See, see, Jesus understands doubt. So many times I think we get this idea that Jesus would be ticked off at people's doubts or disappointed, but he understands that this is not easy to trust Jesus um, with us not knowing and not understanding all of our faith or not knowing or understanding why tragedy happens or, or why God shows up sometimes, but other times we don't know where he is. See, Jesus shows that he knows that faith is not easy. He understands and he blesses us for being willing even though we don't get to fully see. You know, here's the deal about faith. Like, if you already know that something's true, then what does faith have to do with it? Right? If we could see everything clearly, we wouldn't need faith, would we? See, there's this element of letting go involved in living a life of faith. There's this element of just letting go. Um, to some extent, we can't guarantee 
or have the proof beyond the shadow of a doubt that we would like to have about everything. And the good thing is that's okay because if we had all that, it wouldn't be faith. Um, And so doubt, as we talked about last week, doubt is not the enemy of faith. Last week I uh, told you a bunch of my you know, current, recent, honest doubts that I carry. And so far, nobody has, like, tried to get me fired from our church. <laughs> um, only a couple laughs. Okay, so maybe the campaign's underway. Um, but, but, but um, like, doubts are just normal. Um, and it's important to be honest about them. Um, and at some point, even with the doubts that we have that remain, because there will always be doubts if we're honestly looking at life around us, but at some point, we have a choice. We're either going to take the leap and be open to God, take that step where we go ahead and pursue faith even before all our doubts are answered to the satisfaction that we wish they would be, to even start leaning toward believing even though I don't see um, that's part of faith. And it's held together with doubt. So you have faith and you have doubt. We, We hold them both together honestly. I like how uh, Henry Nouwen talks about faith and doubt. Nouwen was a priest who often talked about pain and faith and doubt and struggle. And in the final year of Henry's life, um, uh, this very well-known, still today, well, lots of people read um, him. And and the final year of his life, he took a sabbatical from working and from writing. Uh, He admitted that he longed for God Yet suddenly, late in life, he admits that he found it hard to pray. And then he found himself drawn, true story, to a circus act. (laughs) Can you imagine? Um, This this guy is a a Dutch priest, very, you know, kind of between the rails, right? A Dutch priest who taught at Ivy League universities as a professor. This guy decides to hang out with the greatest show on earth. Um, and what really attracted and drew his interest was this trapeze act, the, the flying Rodleys. And he'd watch them perform and, and get to know them. And uh, today, trapeze artists use a safety net. But back then, um, not always. And even with a safety net, it's pretty dangerous because falling into even a safety net can be a fatal uh, proposition. And, and this, is a, this is a treacherous job, this trapeze um, act and, and in this one, the fr- flying Rodleys, there were five members. Um, three were flyers, three flyers, and two were catchers. It's exactly what it sounds like. Um, and so the flyers, uh, they would climb up the steps, mount the platform, grasp the trapeze, uh, and leap off the platform, swinging through the air, using the flyer, using their body for momentum, swinging faster and higher and faster and higher, while the catcher hangs from his knees on another trapeze with his hands free to reach out. Now, the moment of truth in any of these trapeze acts comes when the flyer lets go and sails into the air. No connection to the earth does, you know, maybe a flip or a twist or two. And just picture that. Just picture that happening like kind of the flyer in the middle of a somersault. Just even freeze frame it in your mind. Um, There's a moment where there is nothing um, to keep the flyer from plummeting to their death. Especially when they used to do this like they did back then with no net. What would you imagine that that would feel like? 
You suppose that flyer would be terrified <laughs> um, or, or maybe exhilarated, like fully alive, every cell screaming in their body. Um, do you think they ever felt fear? Maybe both. <laughs> yeah, probably both. Um, and then just imagine, uh, continue, just imagining in slow motion what happens next. Uh, over here now, the, the catcher swings into view. He's been timing his arcs perfectly. The flyer's up in the air. The catcher arrives just as the flyer loses momentum and is beginning to drop. And the catcher's hands grab the arms of the flyer. Now, if you're the flyer, even at the moment where your hands are grabbed, your arms are grabbed, uh, the flyer, you can't see the catcher. Like everything's a blur if you're the flyer, but as a flyer, you suddenly feel yourself snatched out of the air as the catcher takes the flyer home. And the flyer is very, very grateful, right? <laughs> um, now and spent some time getting to know all of them, especially the flyers. And flyers are 150 pounds or less because if you're a catcher, you don't want a flyer that looks like me, amen, right? Just saying. Thank you, sir. Flyers and catchers. And now here's the deal. For flyers, here's where trusting comes in. Letting go is always an act of trust. Letting go is always an act of trust. Rodley, the leader of this trapeze group, he told this to now, and he said, as a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The public might think that I'm the star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there for me with this split-second precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him in the long jump. And now one says, how does it work? Rodley answered, the secret is, is that the flyer does, next slide, the secret is that the flyer does nothing. The catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, his catcher, I have simply to stretch out my arms and hands and wait. Henry asked him, wait, you do nothing? He said, a flyer must fly and a catcher must catch. The flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there waiting for him. Now one writes, when Rodley said this with so much conviction, the words of Jesus flashed through my mind when Jesus said on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He realized that even Jesus had to let go and trust Father God to catch him. Even Jesus did. Then now and writes these words to himself and to us. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Remember that you are the beloved child of God. And he will be there for you when you make your long jump. Don't try to grab him. He will grab you. Just stretch out your arms and hands and trust, trust, trust. What a great picture this is. And I guess the question for us out of this story is, so will you be the flyer? Will you and I stretch out our arms, let go, and trust that God will catch you? See, there's so many ways in our life where God comes to us and asks, let go, right? Will you, will you let go? 
Um, that letting go could look differently for, for each of us. Um, so what does Jesus invite us to let go of, people wonder? <laughs> he invites us to let go of anything that will keep you from God. And he's done this all through history as well. Like in the Gospels, the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler is a lot like that. You could say the rich young ruler's trapeze was called money. When Jesus asked that young man, will you give away or sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and come and follow me? It was like asking him, will you let go of, of your trapeze? Or when Jesus, when Jesus spoke to the woman caught in an adulterous affair, he said to her, your sins are forgiven, now go and sin no more. Will you let go of that relationship that you know doesn't honor God and is tearing your heart apart? Let go. And to us, maybe he's saying, um, let go. Let go of that relationship uh, if it's dishonoring God. Let go of your attachment to money, let go of our grasping for power. Be a, be a servant instead. Join that fellowship of the towel that we talked about a few weeks ago. Or, or let go of your addiction. Admit it, get help. Um, maybe the let go is to let go of the grudge, let go of the resentment, let go of our ego, our pride, our obsession with reputation, my stubbornness, whatever it is, God will come and say to us, about that thing that we think we have to grab onto because we need it, we have to have it, and he will invite us to let go. And when he does, and he might be doing some of that for us this morning, will you let go? Will you let go? Will you trust God? We'll catch you. Again, don't be afraid. Remember that you are the beloved child of God. He will be there for you when you make that long jump. Don't try to grab him. He will grab you. Just stretch out your hands and trust, trust, trust. As the worship team comes, there may be some of you here this morning or maybe watching online that Maybe you've never made that decision to take that first step, that first leap, that first jump to be the flyer and trust God to catch you, to, to say yes to Jesus, to trust him, to have faith in him. And, and maybe part of it is that you've still got questions and you still have doubts and maybe somewhere in your mind or heart you thought that you first have to sort out all your questions before you can follow Jesus and... Um, but you don't have to sort it all out. You can come as you are with all your mess, all your questions, all your doubts. God's not afraid of your doubts or your questions. And if that describes you, um, I believe that you're not here by accident today and that God has you here for a reason. And the reason that you are here is for you to take this next step towards faith in Christ. So will you, in the metaphor of the trapeze, will you, will you let go? Um, and will you pray to make a decision to begin following Jesus right now, right here today? Like today is the day that you can say, I give my life to Jesus. I give my heart to Jesus. I, I'm going to come as I am, and I do have doubts, but I really want faith. I want to follow Jesus. And so I want to give anybody here that that's true of today an opportunity to um, make a decision to follow Jesus. So. I'm just going to ask everybody, every head bowed, every eye closed, uh, nobody looking around. This is decision time. 
And with no one looking around, if, if that speaks to you, if you're someone that has never made this commitment to follow Jesus, but you're ready to make that decision this morning, if you want to say yes to Jesus, would you, would you just bravely raise your hand high and make eye contact with me right now? that describes you, would you raise your hand high if you want to begin following Jesus this morning? All right. In a moment, we're going to sing together before we dismiss. And um, I'm going to pray here. Uh, Father, I, I just ask that this morning... I pray for courage. I pray for courage for people who have yet to cross the line of faith, uh, even while they know they have doubts. Um, I pray that even as these moments happen before we prepare to leave this morning, maybe they would talk to the person they came with or or they'd have the courage to connect with one of our our team members back at the prayer corner um, and that they would make that commitment to you, that they would pray and start that relationship with you today. And Father, for all of us in this room, I thank you that you meet all of us exactly where we are. There are so many of us this morning um, that have places in our lives where we need to trust you. There's something that needs to be let go of so that we can be free and to be fully yours. You're calling us to let go of some stuff maybe that even feels scary. But in these places that you are inviting us to let it fly and trust that you will catch us, will you give us courage? Will you help us trust you more deeply? Jesus, will you meet us and will you catch us? Jesus, thank you that in our faith and in our doubt, in our faith and our doubt, you do come for us like you did Thomas again and again and again. And as we sing now, let our hearts be filled with courage to trust you, to trust you, to catch each and every one of us. Amen.